Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson. And joining me again, the one and only Rich Adam. Rich, welcome back. Thank you. How are you, Rob? Uh, You know, I'm like deep into this abduction stuff, man. And I got to tell you, it's uh, messed with your mind a little bit. It's uh, not good. It really does. I don't know. Is it? Uh, maybe it's just us. I feel like we get into this stuff so much that after a while, like after you read your thousandth case, you're like, okay, clearly, like I don't really question anymore if this is happening. I'm yeah. like, it's happening. It, it, there's just there's there's just too many stories told by too many people over too many years who don't know each other and the stories sound the same you know and, and it doesn't i wish i could say it made more sense like like <laughs> a answer revealed itself but you know yeah. yeah no it it doesn't it is as ambiguous as it was at the start and this series is probably it's very ambitious uh, because it, we're, we're diving deep into the history of alien abductions. This is just a part one, and we're talking about a series that's probably going to end up in like 10 parts at this point because there's, you know, you can condense a lot of uh, sightings in certain time periods and, and do episodes on them, but there are so many stories that deserve their own episodes that we're going to do and this this first part we're getting into the early history of alien abductions and kind of the accounts that you do know the accounts you don't know you know and like we're not going to dive too deep into the stuff that we've already covered we'll we'll mention stuff because uh, it's interesting how kind of Reports circulated around this time because nobody wanted to really do anything with them because a lot of people thought uh, when they did show them to other people, they were kind of a laughing stock. It's like this is something completely brand new. It's it's something that's not typical of, of what they are used to dealing with. So these reports just kind of, you know, linger. Well. Uh, in in yeah. in certain offices for in, until about 1965, it it falls prey to that thing, which is one of my favorite things um, about what you know, kind of our hobby or whatever paranormal research, where where it's I, and I think this was much more true in the past, and it's becoming less true, but the sort of um, siloing off of phenomenon into mm-hmm. certain schools that that never really crossed like there were there were the Loch Ness monster people but they they were separate from the ghost people who were separate from the bigfoot people who were separate from the ufo people everything sort of had its own people that were interested in one not interested in the other and and then 
what you're getting now is people going back and looking at older cases and going, um, well, you know, that that UFO, a lot of the UFO cases, you know, that particular flap in Pennsylvania during these years also included Bigfoot sightings. It's like the Stan Gordon sort of stuff. Um, finding the things that were edited out of the original reports because the people who were investigating were working for an organization that only was about UFOs. So it's mm -hmm. they're sort of like, just start with when you saw the UFO and when the UFO went away. I don't want to hear about the Bigfoot you saw before or the poltergeist activity that happened afterwards. Now we're getting all this stuff. So, so I, I what what it sounds like you were getting at is this notion of now that we're really looking at it, abductions actually started happening in the modern sense even earlier, a few decades earlier than we ex thought previously thought. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. There's, and it's tough looking at this in the in the context of the time because you have to take into consideration that um, a lot of earlier abduction reports were reported, you know, in the 1980s, like post, you know, communion comes out, and a lot of people start talking about their abductions going back into the the. 20s 30s 40s 50s and, and stuff like that so in this first part we're going to kind of separate that a little bit and we're going to address the abduction accounts that came forth between 1957 and 1969 so everything that you're going to hear in this particular episode was not reported after 1969 this is Everything that, um, like cases that you know, cases that you really don't know. Like there were a couple of cases that I found in the Condon Committee's files that yeah nobody talked about. That Michael D. Swords ended up finding in like you know some letters and stuff like that, which is which is interesting to me because they are classic abduction cases, but they're also they came forth because the interrupted journey was published. So you have, you know, these monumental texts that are, are published that kind of bring out the, um, the experiencers and there you go. You got the new edition there. Rich is holding up a new edition of the interrupted journey by John G. Fuller that uh, came out. Uh, I think it was earlier this year, I believe. Yeah. Is there going to be an, a video portion of this on YouTube or something? No, no. But uh, OK, so me holding up books is really would only be fun for I, it's, me. It's going to it's going to it's going to be so great, though. It's going to be so great. I like to see the books and I feel All like right, that's well, an exclusive thing for me. They don't they don't get that. Um, that but is, uh, is <laughs> I, I'm just going to get a couple others on deck. So you'll, uh, so hey, you get your time. couple others on deck, but uh, right, yeah. Wanna, so I'll surprise you later. Yeah, yes. Uh, so we're going to be yeah concentrating 1957 to 1969. So we're not going to be covering the quote unquote paleo abductions, which is the term that uh, Jerry Clark gave um, abduction accounts that uh, were reported that are kind of you know they're they're in that ambiguous 
area, but they were reported uh, before the 1960s when, you know, we kind of have our um, modern abduction accounts well, come forward. But I mean, um, uh, let's OK. So so for the for the casual listener, like I don't really, you know, the people listening to this show and I know that there are millions so it's mm-hmm. it's hard to you know generalize, but um, it's like, do they know a lot about UFOs, and are is this all for the inside baseball mm-hmm. people, or do they know almost nothing? So, I, for for I'm just going to sort of say that the Betty and Barney Hill case is what most people, casual and even semi authoritative people, refer to as the first abduction case. And that was right. in 19, it happened in 61, but it, it kind of wasn't known about until a few years later when they began their own journey of remembering mm-hmm. through hypnosis and stuff like that. And then, of course, the books came out, The um, Interrupted Journey. So, so it's almost like it's almost like pre-61. I mean, 47 is the UFO date, 61 is the abduction date, because 47 yep. is when Kenneth Arnold saw you know, the flying discs over Mount Rainier and the term flying saucer came about. So these cases are sort of post Kenneth Arnold, because that was 47. We're going to start at 59. 59 is a little bit pre Betty and Barney Hill. And Mm. then we go through their recollections and all the way up to 69. But we don't go into the 70s when abductions kind of the reports of them seem to spike, right? Yeah, there are certain years that have, uh, you know, because up until that point, uh, once you get into the 70s, you have years that have more than one abduction report, because uh, before then, abductions are kind of this like, you know, uh, occasional thing that are reported. But once you get into the 70s, like 73, there was like, I want to say at least five cases 75 there was i want to say eight i think that's what i um that's just like a base estimation from looking through the um the humcat the humanoid catalog uh but and and again those ones got reported the ones we heard about i mean that's not like there weren't more there might have been more right but this is also the time when abductions aren't repeat events they're one-off kind of things they're not what we typically come to view abductions in the 1980s which is this familial thing that occurs over you know years multiple times and all that kind of stuff this is a one and done kind of situation in, in most cases with the exception i would say of uh Betty Hill, who I don't know if she necessarily was abducted multiple times, but she had multiple UFO experiences over her life. Um, and uh, well, yeah, so. Well, again, uh, and, it, and it's like in, in 87 with um, Communion. Communion, yeah. He's holding up his uh, shiny copy of Communion. Um, there it is. I'm da- dancing the guy so it looks like he's dancing. It, totally dancing yeah. totally ha- holy grooving it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah th- then then 87 is like the next sort of landmark of mm-hmm. the you know his book being written published people reading it and that book being about 
an abduction that was then understood by the author as being a part of a lifelong experience of abductions and interactions with the visitors. So yes. that's like the next. So that, then, then that became a thing. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then for a while you heard a lot about that. A lot of, a lot of people, that was the MIT, you know, um, uh, the big MIT conference w- seemed to be about people who suspected this had been a lifelong experience they were having. Yeah. And that was in the, I think, 91. So, so things kind of just kind of get bigger and more complex as, as the years roll on. Yes. This, this phenomenon takes on kind of a, a life all its own and it, uh, becomes, uh, more and more intricate. But, um, uh, we're going to start with a quote from uh, Thomas Bullard, uh, Eddie Bullard, who uh, was kind enough to send me his, some of his research. Um, yep, there you go. The myth and mystery of UFOs. Um, he uh, he was tasked by the uh, Fund for UFO Research in 1987 to do a, a comparative study of uh, UFO abductions and determine, you know, kind of if they were a real phenomenon or not. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty landmark study. And um, there's a, a, a very nice kind of history that he lays out uh, in it. But uh, this is a quote from that, uh, quote, UFO abductions in the strict sense of the term usually include a visible UFO and require involuntary capture or coercion to get witnesses on board. Once they are inside, the crew examines them and turns them out after about two hours. And during that time, the witnesses usually suffer some impairment of memory, consciousness, or ability to act. Failure to remember the encounter often persists long after the abduction is over. The earliest case of this general description occurred as early as 1929 and a few others date prior to 1947. But abductions begin to roll only in 1949. A low incidence persists until 1967, but the high rate of that year did not survive the decline in UFO activity or interest current around 1970. The number leaps to new highs during the flap year of 1973, and this time the level holds with 1979 topping the chart with two dozen cases. A drop-off in the 1980s may follow the general decline in UFO activity during this decade. This this is a funny statement because, uh, you know, he published this in 1987, I believe it was, before Whitley Strieber had uh, dropped communion. So he's, you know, saying, well, the 80s, it's going to be a decline. But uh, delays in reporting, investigation, and publication may be responsible. Time will tell whether the poor turnout applies to actual abductions or abduction reports. Um, At this point, a word of caution is necessary. Many witnesses claim abductions back into the 1940s and 1950s, but at uh, a glance at the upper half of its table uh, 1-1 shows that no, no one reported an abduction before 1957. So that's our premise here. No one reported an abduction before 1957. But that's okay. not right, is it? I mean, that doesn't that, that that is proven to not be true. Okay, so 
what we're going to get into here is that when we when we're talking about reported, we're talking about printed. It's in it's printed either in the UFO media, the you know, uh, the press, something like that. It's it has an audience of some kind. This is this is what we're getting at here. Okay. There may have been you know uh, other abduction accounts that people had, and, and and I mean through all evidence, there are abduction accounts again going back into the, the 1920s and even before that. But it's not an established thing. Or it's not even an established thing in 1957, but it's beginning to be. It has its kind of start, but in a newspaper account that nobody really read. But it's the first time uh, that, in the modern sense, an abduction count was in print. Okay, now, so from 40, so 47 was Kenneth Arnold, 57 the first abduction. So between 47 and 57, even as different, you know, kind of small groups were, were coming up and forming their own UFO societies and stuff like mm-hmm. that, and maybe printed newsletters and stuff like that, what we're saying is that if, if you were a researcher writing a history book about UFOs, you would have a difficult time finding anything online or in private collections preceding 1957 that describe what we would call an abduction. Is that what we're saying? Right. There's, there is speculation from a few different folks that will, that that we'll get into at the top here. Um, uh, In particular, you know, Charles Fort in new lands, uh, he has this quote, um, One supposes that if extra mundane vessels have sometimes come close to this earth, then sailing away, terrestrial aeronauts may have occasionally left this earth or may have been seized and carried away from this earth. So he's speculating kind of that, uh, hey, maybe, you know, people have been abducted uh, or have been taken away from this earth. And I, I don't think that's a, a far stretch once you start to like, kind of get into the idea that, you know, aliens or whatever may exist out there. And like, maybe they come to earth and maybe they take some people away. Like this is a, it's a very kind of sci-fi concept, but he's the first kind of person to really put it into any kind of like non-fictional sense. And, give it uh, a little bit of life so we but have speculations figure, I mean, yeah yeah but but isn't it like isn't it like everything else doesn't it feel like oh no there were there were abductions only in the 1800s it was the fairies it was the fae you know people who who took you away and used a something that looked like a wand with a light on it. And then suddenly you lost two days and you were in their world and they showed you things. And it's like, like, isn't there sort of a Magonia connection here where it's like, all right, the exact same experience was happening, except because there were no airplanes or anything that really flew in the air. At that point, the mythology that could support that experience had to do with creatures that live in the forest. So that's what that was. And Mm -hmm. then later, as humanity entered the space age, and that became a concept we understood, then that's when the creatures began 
flying around in UFOs because now we knew about UFOs and had a particular connection to things that we don't understand and strange visitors coming. That's the way they would come, not from the woods, but from the sky. Don't you think there's like something in that? Okay. Uh, do you know when Passport to Magonia was published? Do you know what year? Let me grab my copy off the shelf here, <laughs> Mr. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, hold because, on. Because right uh, you're going to kind of prove the point. Uh, is that, oh, that's the OG. There you go. So, uh, what year was that published? Uh, it was published in the year of our Lord, 1969. There we go. So again, my premise here <laughs> that 1969 is when you you start to see that idea, I think, really popularized. That's where it kind of takes off, because uh, if you look at Jacques Vallée's work before that, it's very nuts and boltsy. It's very, you know, like uh, anatomy of a phenomena and um challenge to science these are kind of these are books that dive into the nuts and bolts aspects of the phenomenon so once passport to begonia is published yeah there's the those connections are out there but again that's not till 1969 and we're not there yet but we get there so we have these uh ambiguous periods um you know um there were other authors that did speculate on this idea of abductions to um, Donald Kehoe kind of published in flying saucers from outer space. He had a little segment in there. Um, Harold T. Wilkins, who um, very, very paranoid, just just very paranoid, was uh, kind of a, a proponent of abductions uh, or, you know, and even like that term abductions wasn't really a big thing at the time. Like they were talking about, they were calling them kidnappings in the 1950s. Yeah, there you go. I have that. I have that same uh, edition uh, flying saucers from outer space, flying saucers. On, oh, you, there you go. There we go. Flying saucers on the attack by Harold T. Wilkins. Uh, Rich has, you know, first editions because it's Rich Adam, and uh, that's what he brings well, to the table. But You're the only one who I, I can share these things with, you know? I mean, it's like, I don't have a lot of friends coming over and playing in my office, and we all get out my UFO first editions and play with them, you know? <laughs> It's like it's like when you went when you were eight years old and you go to your friend's house and they had some really cool model or some you know like collectible or comic book you know uh, one of these days you got to come out here and then we can take all my books down and stack them up and stack them in different categories and flip through them yep. and sniff them and everything yep. you know right <laughs> uh, yeah no uh, I'll go over because... to your house and flip through all the uh, journals all the uh, uh, JUFO you know oh yeah <laughs> journal of yep. UFO studies. Yeah, I I have uh I think I have a first edition of uh Kenneth Arnold's book. Um I think it's a first edition. Um there's a couple first editions that I have. I have a first edition of Orfeo Angelucci stuff. Um nice. But uh, yeah, but um uh it's just a competition that, now. We're we're just going to hold books yeah. at each other. What about mine? <laughs> well, I've got one too. Well, what condition is yours? Well, mine's very good. Well, mine's fine. Yeah, <laughs> like we're going by the eBay standards. 
I go by, I've got a new thing, and it should have been an old thing, because there was a point where I just wanted to collect the books, and now it's like, now I've got a motto, fine or signed, it's got to be one or the other. Yeah, It can be both, that's great, but it's either got to be fine or it's got to be signed. Then I still find myself buying, you know, very good minus with shitty dust jacket, you know, <laughs> just because I want to have it. These yeah, things are hard no. to find. You can't get it. It's not like they're everywhere. So it's like, well, if I don't buy this copy, there may never be another copy. But but I'm right. trying to hold off. I'm trying to no, fine or signed, fine or signed, Adam. Yeah. Keep it together. Keep it together. <laughs> so Thomas Bullard points to um there being three starting points essentially for the abduction phenomenon. And and he and he points to three particular stories. Uh, one of them is Antonio Vias Boas. The second is uh, Betty and Barney Hill. But the third is a story that I don't think most people know because uh, it's from an unnamed witness. It's not very popularized. It was printed in a uh, newspaper called the Prince George Citizen in 1957. Um. And the title of the article is called Citizen Editor Talks to Man Who Visited Mars. So these words splashed on the front page of the Prince George Citizen, which, yeah, again, it's a North Central British Columbia newspaper. So like most small town newspapers, it wasn't making big splashes across the world. So, you know, it's not really concerning itself with like tabloid news or anything like that, but uh, it's... December 11th, 1957, those words appeared in print. Uh, and this story appears in print two months after, uh, or nearly two months after the actual Antonio Villas-Boas abduction having taken place. But this abduction that is being printed occurred in 1951. So the article was okay. written by the paper's editor, a guy named Ron Powell. And right, because the guy, the guy was like he was getting old. He thought he was going to die or whatever, and so yeah. that's why he came forward. Right? Okay. So it's fifty-seven, but the thing took place in fifty-one. Had the Antonio uh, Vias Boas story become international news yet? No, it wouldn't. Okay. So this it, is pretty unheard of. Yeah. Yes. Um, this concept is entirely unheard of. Not only that. It was another two months until Alavo Fontes would actually examine Antonio Villas-Boas, would write up his report, and would send it off to the folks at uh, uh, APRO. But um, yeah, this so this is like your kind of first taste of it. But again, this is in a, a newspaper that is, you know, doesn't have a wide circulation. So uh, the staff of Canadian UFO Report which this is one of my all-time favorite like UFO journals because the art in it is phenomenal and they're they're hard to track down you know they're, they're hard to find copies of um it, it I've have like one copy that uh, I was able to procure but um you know years years later this was published in like a, a 1970s edition but um while uh, he, um, this guy couldn't recall his name. Uh, the folks at Canadian UFO report did track down pal. They started talking to him. 
didn't remember his name. They didn't print his name because he didn't want his name in print. Um, and, you know, he recalled that he was in his 40s. He had a heart condition. And yeah, he just felt like he didn't have a lot of time left. So he wanted to tell his story. So what we're going to do is we're going to tell the story verbatim because um, I, I tried tracking down a copy of the Prince George Citizen and I couldn't, but it was reprinted in this uh, issue of Canadian UFO report, which the, so do you um, have, the, you, you have the Canadian UFO report. Do you have that? I have a uh, PDF of it that um, okay. the, um, uh, the AFU, which is a fantastic resource um, uh, actually archived. So for the listener, as far as we can get, this is like the earliest North American abduction report. So this is kind of like the first one. It feels it is very much in a vacuum. In other words, it's not like this person was fashioning their story based on a bunch of other stories they had heard. This guy shows up in a small town, talks. I mean, it's very interview with the vampire. <laughs> you know? yeah. Sort of like, I have a story to tell. I will tell you. I will tell it once and then I will vanish. Yep. Here is the story I am here to tell, that he tells it with complete sincerity. Mm-hmm. And and I'm so glad you're doing it word for word because I read this thing. It's amazing. I want the listener to know th- this at this point, these stories don't exist, okay? Mm-hmm. Now let's hear what he says and see if it sounds like anything that we've heard in decades since then. So, uh, yeah, um, this gentleman did not want to come forward with this story. He told Ron Powell because uh, he feared that the space people would come back. But um, uh, this is the article. Uh, Quote, I have a story I would very much like to tell you, but I'm afraid you might think me completely crazy or else laugh at me. He then went on to tell of being picked up in a flying machine shaped like a saucer by a creature not of this world and of being transported through space at a tremendous rate of speed to a planet he assumed was Mars. My initial reaction was one of complete skepticism and I was alert for any signs of violence while looking for an opening to ease him out of the building. But... (laughs) As the stranger went on with his weird tale in a calm, quiet manner, I began to relax a bit. Just a few years ago, Sputnik circling the Earth would have been crazy, too. It was almost as if he was telling me about a trip to some foreign country. I tried to look for loopholes in his story, and I tried to catch him uh, up on many of the smaller details. He couldn't be caught. The interest for me became so great that I told him to start right at the beginning and tell his story with as many details as he could remember. The interview is recorded below in his exact words. By the time his story had ended, more than four hours had passed. We shook hands and he went away, seeming a bit relieved that someone someone had at least listened to him. The man's detailed story is as follows. Quote, I was working for the U.S. Occupation Army in Austria on May 15th, 1951. I was driving for QM Colonel Cousin. He commanded me to drive Mr. Haster to Linz from Salzburg. 
Mr. Haster, was teaching evening courses to the United States soldiers in Linz. My job was to drive him from Salzburg to Linz three times a week. This particular day, I came back as usual from Linz at about 11 o'clock at night and arrived at the motor pool five miles north of Salzburg. I started for home after leaving the car at the motor pool. I live two miles north of the motor pool. I took a shortcut and on the left-hand side was brush. It was dark, no moon. Suddenly, someone came out of the bush and came close to me. I could only see the light. Uh, I could only see the outline in the dark, but he seemed to have a helmet on. He was about my height, maybe a little shorter. He had something in his hand and he pointed at it at me. I thought it was his finger, but it made a click. After the click, he waved his hand quickly and I went to put my arm up in front of my face, but I was paralyzed. I felt like falling down, but I didn't. He put a black square plate on my chest and strapped it around my back. I could hear a dog barking away off in the distance, but I couldn't hear him walking. He must have walked very easily. I could see his outline as he walked around me. After he strapped the plate on me, he walked in front of me and he pointed the thing in his hand at the plate on my chest rather than my head like before. He walked away and pulled me after him. I couldn't move or walk, but he just pulled me along after him. I wasn't actually in the air, but my full weight wasn't on the ground. It seemed as if I was light. So that's, I just want to stop there for a second. That's interesting because he's, he's not talking about floating. He's, well, he's talking about being weightless, essentially. So it's kind of like he is floating. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine what exactly is going on. Like he didn't say his feet were dragging on the ground. No. So so and he doesn't say floating. He says it was like I was light. I don't know. It th- th- I I stopped at that same place. It's very difficult to understand exactly what he's referring to. But okay. Yeah. Maybe he was already experiencing and, and he mentions it later a sense of unreality. Where yes. suddenly it's going to be hard to put things into words that translate directly into the experience he was having and relaying it to us. But okay, yep. all right, he was light. Yes. Behind the brush was a small field. In the field, hidden from the road, was a round object about 150 feet in diameter. It was dark and I couldn't tell what it was. My first thought was a spy had captured me for some reason. The thing had led me sort of rose from the ground and took me after him to the top of the object. He did something, either stepped on something or pushed some button, and a door opened, and he pulled me after him down into the dark. I was plenty scared, and I wondered what would happen next. I got down in the dark, and I could feel, finally feel a floor under my feet. I knew that where I was was either glass or plastic because the stars could be seen shining up above. Then I saw the outline of what looked like a door and he pulled me through into what I later found out was a room of glass or plastic. He kept his finger, what I thought was his finger, and later saw was some sort of pencil-shaped object 
pointed at me until I was inside the room. He kept it pointed at me all the time. When Then when I was in the room, he took it off me, and I sank down to the floor. He went out, and I could see his outline. There was a sort of shaking sensation, and I knew the door of the room had been shut. The next sensation I had was a sensation of rising up into the air. I had never flown before in my life. In a few minutes, I could see the left half of the moon shining. I was so scared, but I figured I was dreaming. Then I started to feel my hands and feet again. I sat up, and then I got up on my feet. By this time, we were in the sunlight. I looked across the ship, and I could see the person that had brought me here. He was standing over by the wall, and there was some levers on the wall. He looked like a person, like we are a little bit shorter than me. To me at the time, he looked like a devil. He had no hair at all. I could see through the sort of, the sort of glass helmet. His head was sort of a cylinder form, a very high forehead with big eyes. You could see lots of little eyes in the in the two big eyes. Okay, so we're talking about like kind of like an insects eyes this this is what we're talking yes. about here is is right and, and like yeah the the sketch uh i don't know if you've seen the sketch of this creature no but, do you um, have a sketch there is there are a couple of sketches that are made i can send you a couple of uh links that i have uh because um, how cl- but, but how is- close to like the classic big-eyed big big-headed alien how close is it, it? looks it looks a lot like a gray with a big head, like a really big head. Um, okay, so, so this is like, the, uh, you read something like that and you think, wow, okay, this is long before, you know, the movies and the, the you know, the popular culture adopts the, you know, the grays. And yet he describes them in the same way. Yeah. That to me is pretty interesting. Yes. I mean, you know what it is? It makes it feel like there is some basic physical reality to these creatures, that no matter how they present themselves, there is some base physicality that they reveal to the people who see them no matter what. It's not like they have the ability to appear in absolutely any form. They sort of present the way they must be to a certain extent, or at least this species, because they're always described more or less in that way. The big almond shape eyes. Yes. It screams of like an insectoid uh, in a way, kind of like in some accounts of the grace. So uh, it seemed to me it looked like the eyes of a fly. No nose at all, just two holes. He had a very small slit for a mouth. It looked like he had skin. It was sort of white. There were two holes for the ears. His skull was very large. He had no eyebrows or any hair at all. The torso was round, kind of like a tin can. The legs were of proportionate length. His arms were a little bit shorter than our arms, I would say. His hands seemed to be three long fingers. I couldn't see any neck, but he was dressed in material that was silver, but it wasn't shiny. This covered all of him except the head part, which had on the helmet. He didn't look at me at all. 
The main part of the ship that I could see from the room I was it, I was in appeared to be round and the walls were like glass, but you couldn't see anything through them. The floor was made of glass or plastic. In the middle of the floor, under the glass, was a black plate, something like I had strapped on my chest. From the corners of the plate, which looked to be about 10 feet square, black beams ran to the walls of the ship. I could see under the black plate, and there seemed to be a duplicate room on the other side of the ship. I could see the same kind of levers on the wall as the thing was standing beside. As soon as we came into the sun, I could feel a real burning heat. But he pulled a lever, and a covering, like blue water, came over the roof. Then the sun was normal, but I could still see through it. My first thought was that I was dreaming, and then my second thought, was that I was dead and my soul was rising up. The ship was not rotating or going sideways, but kind of gliding straight up. I could see the sun like a ball of fire and the moon like a silver ball, but the rest was darkness. Suddenly, as I looked up, the moon was right above us, and it seemed to come down at us. Suddenly, we were both standing on what had been the roof. We seemed to be about a quarter of a mile from... Uh, a quarter mile above the moon. I could see clearly the craters on the surface of the moon. There was lots of them. The ground seemed to be grayish color, and I could see rocks and hills. We were in the sunny part of the moon. Then the ship glided to the right and into the darkness. Then the driver stopped the ship. I could feel it sort of waiting. It was dark all around outside, but the sun seemed to shine into the ship. I saw the thing take one of the pencil things that he had pointed at me and pointed it downwards. I thought at that time that he must be from the moon and that he was signaling someone down below. There was no noise at all from the ship or from the signal. After about five minutes, we started to move to the right. My first thought was that I'm going back to Earth, but I looked up above me and I could see the big tall the big ball that I knew was the Earth. I could see the outline of America and Asia, and I could see the clouds. The Earth and the moon were going away from me very fast. Then I began to think that this was from another planet. Suddenly, another planet seemed to loom up in front of us, and I thought we were going to crash into it. I was sure of this. But the driver suddenly stopped it again. But there was no jerk. I realized that we were still still quite a ways from the planet, and he started to glide sideways down towards the ground. I looked out over the land, and it looked like paradise. As we went down, I looked out over the land, and on one side there were red fields. On the other side, there were what looked like gray-green fields. Some places in the fields there were what looked like big chimneys rising from the ground. It was bright daylight, and the sun was shining with no clouds in the sky. We were approaching the red fields, and I could see rivers with blue water in them. The rivers ran straight, and at intervals there were bridges built across them, and I could see roads. The bridges were just like our bridges. From up high, I could see no signs of life. Then we glided up to a field that was filled with the saucers like I was in. There appeared to be hundreds of them. 
They were of different colors, gray, gold, and silver, but there was no black or red ones. The driver stopped the ship about a quarter of a mile above them by just pulling the lever. Then we went straight down until we were about 20 or 30 feet from the ground, and he parked the ship on a high platform. As we went down, I could see that same kind of people were uh, in them, like my driver. When we, when we got stopped on the platform, the driver pulled a lever, and the glass slid back, and he went outside. He put the pencil-like thing into his chest and slowly dropped to the ground like a falling leaf. He then started... Pause. Yeah. Pause. Yeah. Falling yeah. leaf. Falling yeah. leaf. Right. What the hell, Rob? Like, this yeah. is really creepy. Yeah. It's like the, the same weird clues keep coming back. Like, how many times in your life have you ever described something's movement as being like that of a falling leaf? Never. Right. How many right. times have you heard it used in the description of a UFO and now that of an alien descending from a UFO to a planet like a falling leaf? That's weird. Yeah. What the fuck? Is. How do you even account for that? Right. Because like, it, it, you know, people don't fall that way either. They don't fall from side to side no. like that. <laughs> Almost nothing does. A no. leaf does, but it's not like, oh, I dropped my phone and it fell to the ground like a falling leaf. In fact, right. there's only one other situation in which anyone has ever described something falling like a falling leaf that shouldn't be falling like a falling leaf. And that is in certain poltergeist cases. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Sometimes yeah. people talk about objects falling, but they appear to be falling slightly slower than they should, according to our gravity. There's yeah. just like, you have an innate sense that's, that should be falling faster. Even if it's falling fast, it's like, it's a little slow. And sometimes I've heard things falling in a falling leaf pattern. So poltergeist, yeah. UFOs, what the hell? Right. Things are falling weirdly. He then started to walk. No, no, no. I want no. an answer, Rob. I don't I... want an acknowledgement. <laughs> You're coming to don't me. Don't humor assuming... me. I'm not crazy. <laughs> You're not crazy, but uh, I, I don't even know because it's like, how how many times do do you think about the the falling motion of a leaf? You don't, because like no. it, it it's just something that like when you're a kid you do because like you pay attention to that stuff when you're a kid. When you're older, no, not really. But like you have this like thought as a kid that hey, this is how things fall down, and it's like why well, do they then that, do that? Yeah, it's like a UFO, which sort of, ha you know, if you want to say it looks like a paper plate or something, you could almost you could almost picture it kind of bobbing on the air with its, you know, like mm -hmm. a Frisbee sort of wobbling in the air. OK, but here he's saying that the guy, he put the pencil like thing to his chest and then slowly dropped to the ground like a falling leaf. And then he yeah. started to walk very fast. So you're like, he's talking about the creature. Yeah. So how does a humanoid figure fall to the ground like a falling? I don't know. This is freaking me out. Please continue. 
Uh, he then started to walk very fast along to the third or fourth saucer. He pointed the pencil at his chest again and sort of jumped up inside the ship. He was inside the ship for about 10 minutes. I could see that the thing in the other ship was smaller than the driver of the ship I was on. While he was inside the ship, I looked around at the other saucers, and I could see the same type of people. Suddenly, quite a ways away, I saw two ships that had people from Earth in. One ship was sort of dirty looking, and there was one man, one woman, and two kids in it. In another saucer nearby that was kind of golden, I saw one man and one woman. I was going to wave at them, but I felt scared. I was waiting for them to wave, but they didn't wave. After I saw them, I thought that I would have to stay here with them now. Way off in the distance by the river, I could see things moving. They were dark, but I couldn't tell what they were. Maybe they looked like a herd of beef, but I couldn't tell for sure. Down on the ground. Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. Cattle? Yeah. Yeah. Now we're bringing cattle into this? Yeah. Okay. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Come on. It's hitting we're, a lot we're of hitting the, a, a, yeah. like tropes. Yeah, it is. A lot of tropes. Okay. But, but, but again, it's not like this story became super famous and then everyone copied mm -hmm. this story. No one knew about this. Right. Oh, boy. This is creepy. This one's creepy. And they only get creepier, folks. It's going to get yeah. a lot worse. Uh, down on the ground, I could see big red flowers growing. They looked something like our sunflowers. There were some green patches between them, but there were the flowers as far as the eye could see. The earth could be seen in patches too, and it was just the same as our earth. I got to thinking that I must be on Mars. I remembered what I had learned in school about it being red with canals and it seemed to me that this must be Mars, although I wasn't 100% sure because I kind of lost location of things when we had left the moon. God so, bless this guy. I love yeah. this guy. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. I don't, once we left the moon, I got a little confused. Right. Because you have to wonder in 1951, how much did we know about Mars at that time? Like, yeah, we knew it was kind of this red planet in the sky. We saw it through telescopes. We, we, you know, there were people in the 1800s claiming that uh, there were canals on Mars and stuff like that. And like, you can kind yeah. of see him, you know, parroting that back, but it's just like, yeah, this is, he he's got some like wonder to him that I that I do enjoy, um, you know. And I just, in the, but I, I I do love the fact that he's apologizing for not mm -hmm. knowing moving through three dimensional space exactly. If I think it was Mars, I'm pretty sure. You know, it's like when I drive across town, I'm confused. Yeah. It's like I think I think I got off at La Cienega. I'm not sure. <laughs> and I kind of lost track after downtown, you know, yeah. this guy lost track after the moon, but you know what, dude? All right. You're, you're, you're so far, so far, so good. Yep. Then the driver of the ship came back from the other ship. He got back inside and closed the door again. Then we took off the same we had come. We went up and up into the darkness. And then I could see a moon that looked like a tin ball. We came quite close to it, and I could see that it was a smooth and silvery. 
without any signs of craters on it. I didn't know where we were going then. I thought we might be going farther yet. After about another 10 minutes, I could see what looked like the, like half our moon, and I realized that we were approaching the sunny side of Earth. I was very glad to see that it was Earth, but we came at it with such terrible speed that I thought for sure we would crash. The driver stopped the ship again when it seemed we hit the atmosphere, and he glided toward down towards Earth. I seemed to know he was going to take me back to where he found me, but I had the impression he was going to kill me because he would want to keep it secret. We came into the darkness and then went down to the ground, and I knew we were back at the same place he picked me up. I was really afraid that he would kill me. He opened the door, he took the pencil thing, and pulled me out of the door the way he brought me in. He glided me right back to the road. At that time, I could walk, but I was very light, and he was just pulling me. He took the pencil from my chest and pointed it at my head. At that moment, a dog started to bark at us from about a quarter of a mile up the road, and it seemed to have startled him because the pencil thing clicked and nothing happened to me. I knew from the first appearance, the first experience, I should be paralyzed, so I just pretended I was so that uh, he wouldn't know. He took the plate off my chest and went back to the ship. I stayed the way I was until I saw the outline of the saucer going off in, into the distance. Then I ran home. My wife was still up and she saw me all excited. She asked me what happened and I told her nothing. I'm just sick. I couldn't tell her about the experience because she would have thought I was completely crazy. I noticed the time when I got home and it was 12.20 a.m. The whole trip had taken about an hour. I think when the thing pointed the pencil at my head, it was to make me forget what had happened or else kill me. I didn't know which. And, and that's, that's where his story ends. And there are so many tropes of, like, not, not necessarily what Betty and Barney Hill had reported, not necessarily what Antonio V.S. Boas had reported. This is completely unique. This is completely its own thing. And you see these kind of things in other abduction reports later on in the 70s. You, you see, like with Carl Higdon, he was taken someplace else by his captors. And he was kind of just shown around. I, you know, what's interesting here is like there's no communication whatsoever. It's just pick you up, take you for a ride, bring you back. It's definitely not um, contactee. You know, it's not, it's no. not a lot, a lot of talk and hello, my friend. And let me, t there's no warning about what's going to happen to earth. There's no, you know, uh, l let me tell you the secrets of the universe and introduce you to our culture and our people. It's an abduction. Yeah. Yes. And it's Straight 1951. Up. Yes. In fact, at the very end, when he said, I got home and it was 1220 AM, I'm like, oh, are we going to, is, is he going to say something that tells us it's missing time? Is he going to go, right. but you know, or, or, or was he going to say, oh, it was almost dawn, you know, and I, you know, somehow, right. you know, it had taken hours, but it only, it only took one hour, which is strange enough based on where he says that he thinks he went. But okay, so it took about an hour. I wonder how long it would have taken him to walk home without that. 
Right. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, that's also kind of um, with Antonio V.S. Boas. There was no missing time because he didn't uh, he had conscious recall of everything that had happened to him. So he noted that is that he had spent four hours on that UFO. So um, it, it's interesting in that sense that, yeah, like completely conscious and his memory was intact because a dog barked, which is pretty great. Right. So he gets, so at the beginning of the story, it says he returned to the motor pool at 11 and then he was going to yes. walk home and it was about two miles away. So that walk is going to help. How long does it take a person to walk a mile? 10 minutes? Yeah, about the average. Okay, so it should have taken 20 minutes, putting him at 11.20. It's 12.20. The trip would have taken an hour. Okay, all right. So the the way he calculates it, that makes sense. All right. Yep. So, like I mentioned, the V.S. Boas incident, it occurred two months before this appears in print. Um. And if you're if you're wanting the full details of the V.S. Boas incident, I covered it in episode 31, like like in detail. So uh, if you want to refresh yourself on that, go go check that out. I'm going to make you all return to episodes that I recorded already because I don't want to, you know, fully restate like the stuff in that one. But like, you know, the summary of the V.S. Boas incident is basically that over the course of three nights, there was UFO activity on the V.S. Boas farm. The third night, it culminated in his abduction in which he was taken on board by these figures that were donned in kind of like these rubbery black suits that had hoses on them. They were like from head to toe. They were completely covered. They brought him on board. They uh, stripped him of clothes. They kind of uh, covered him in this like substance uh, all over his body, gel-like substance brought into a room where um there was like gas pumped into the room and then a naked woman came in had sex with a naked woman like two times uh and then uh was eventually he just kind of hung out on the ship for like a few hours with like the other figures the ones uh covered head to toe uh they barked um is what he said and um eventually he was led outside the ship and he was kind of and, and like he was shown around he was given a tour and everything so that's the bs boas incident in as many as many words but um well you know uh, have, having uh a male abductee having sex with a female alien is not unheard of at all uh happened to whitley streber happened to uh david huggins uh the guy from uh love and saucers uh, love and saucers yeah 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 so uh and and you know i'm sure many many others so that as as weird as that one sounds or as lurid or sort of like oh tabloid magazine you know i had sex with an alien actually not the most rare thing in the world you know there's there's there is a there is a sexual component to many many of these cases and even if the abductee is not having sex with an alien there seems to be a preoccupation on the part of the alien with human genitalia and human reproductive organs yeah. and practices and then of course you get into the 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 even stranger stories of the uh the hybrid children that right. uh, people apparently have with aliens and sometimes they're 
abducted throughout their lives and are then asked to hold the offspring of yes. the of of, of the, uh, the 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 sort of the product of the human alien sexual congress and uh, and and these are not ridiculously rare stories either so just a right. little something to keep you awake at night one way and, or the and, other and those stories kind of come to prominence in 1987 with um it, i think it's like uh, uh debbie debbie jordan cobble debbie cobble uh it's her like her story kind of put um the alien human hybrids kind of on the map um because her story was published in uh intruders by bud hopkins which came out a little bit later on in 87 after communion had been published and it's kind of um you know the, the these two texts are kind of the foundation for a lot of experiencers that co would come forward rich has got up he's got his copy of intruders i have that same copy i also have that copy of missing time that he's holding up yeah but hold on uh -oh. But hold on. Oh, don't tell me he's got it signed. Okay. Oh, there it is. He's he's got uh his copy of Missing Time has uh you know is autographed. Uh but uh, <laughs> uh yeah, the um that's where he, uh, interestingly enough, that is not technically the first story of an alien human hybrid in print. I actually found one that was uh story is from the late seventies. So, oh really? Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my a guy. The, yeah. The best part about this book is the afterword is by Doctor A. Clamar. Aphrodite it, it Clamar. Literally, is yeah. like Doctor Acula. Yes. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> it's like, wait, what is? Wait, read this backwards. Wait, what is this? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, a guy named Antonio La Ferreira. He's Brazilian. Is uh, like one of the earliest accounts of um, alien human hybrids. Uh, he had a kind of Antonio V.S. Boas moment. Uh, uh, and uh, we'll be talking about that one, uh, you know, uh, okay, later good. on at some point, you know, throughout the series, uh, we'll be bringing it up. But again, this is denoting that you know, there are three beginnings here to this phenomenon. And the reason that there are three beginnings is because these reports are not circulated to wide audiences. It takes a while before they are within a wide audience. And, you know, aside from... It, assuming yes. they're ever in front of a wide... I mean, Betty and Barney Hill, maybe. Antonio Villas-Boas, sort of. His this, account A lot of these was, other ones, no, at all. Right, Um so Antonio Villas-Boas, his account was investigated by Alavo Fontes four months after his experience because he still had health problems by that time. He had uh, multiple health problems following his incident. He eventually got over them, but um, Alavo Fontes, who was an APRO representative, he made his report. He didn't know what to do with it. He wasn't totally on the side of believing in Antonio Villas-Boas. Neither was Jal Martins, who was the one that brought him the case to begin with. And he creates this report, silently sends it off to Jim and Coral Lorenzen of APRO. They take a look at it. They just kind of like take it out from time to time and show it to people. But it, it doesn't get a lot of wide circulation because there's a lot of criticism about it. It's like... You're telling me this guy was abducted, taken on board, and had sex with a you know female alien and all this stuff, and um, no. So 
it doesn't get wide circulation until and 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 you know wide circulation is a um it's a uh, speculative term in this case because wide circulation was flying saucer review in 1965 when you start when his story first starts to be published um and the way in which it comes to be published is that a gentleman by the name of dr walter bueller he hears he gets wind of the story so he goes and he tracks down vs boas in sao francisco de salas still living on the farm at the time um and like V.S. Boas would eventually go on to become a lawyer. He died in like 1991, but at the time, still working on a farm. Goes, uh, he they meets with him, and there the details are off. There's some details that I'm not sure if uh, V.S. Boas didn't remember them properly, or if he didn't want to give him correct details or something like that. But over the course of, I want to say it's like two or three months. There's a series of articles in Flying Sauce Reviews starting in January, February 1965 uh, called uh, The Most Amazing Case of All is what he is what uh, I think it was uh, Gordon Creighton uh, called it. But um, so that's kind of your first case. But even then, I don't think V.S. Boas is as wide circulation. I mean, like now, given the way that um you know podcasts and stuff are are out there and like you know the internet is out there his story is a little more well known but even in 1965 and then uh in 66 uh, eventually a lava fontes gets wind of these articles and he's like yeah he got a bunch of stuff wrong Le- allow me to correct that for you so he sends him his report and it gets printed in flying sauce review in 66 and 67 this is my mind, folks. This is what I know. And like, I, it's a curse. It's a fucking curse. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, people like there's, there's people who know, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, outfield for the uh, New York Mets, you know, 1961, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, uh, everyone's head is filled with facts. I've got a friend, my friend, Larry knows everything about the Beatles, every, every recording, every track who played on what, and, and, and this guest guitarist on George Harrison's third album, fourth track, you know, and he just, he lives with that information in his head. Mm-hmm. Now we turn our, our attention to Rob Christopherson. Gaze upon him now, <laughs> the UFO um, nerd <laughs> who knows yes. everything there is to be known and can recall the facts without referring to his notes. Yes, um, but yeah, they're they're just there. So you got that with V.S. Boas, with Betty and Barney Hill. Um, Walter Webb from NICAP comes out to investigate almost immediately. He does his investigation in 1961 as does P's Air Force Base. There's other people that get involved with that. But uh, the main report is um, written in 1961. It doesn't have anything about uh, an abduction because that isn't explored until 1964. That's when they start going to Dr. Benjamin Simon, who regresses them. That's where the abduction narrative comes from. And eventually, the um, their story... Uh, gets uh, 
it's a guy named John Luttrell. Uh, he's a journalist with the Boston Traveler. And he gets wind of their story from a lecture that they gave. And he decides that he wants to get his hands on the NICAP report, learns of it. Um, the NICAP report is updated, so it has the abduction stuff in it. Uh, Walter Webb updates the report. And uh, eventually, John Luttrell publishes uh, in the Boston Traveler. Um, it, the, the title of the article is called UFO Chiller Was New Hampshire Couple Seized? Uh, by UFO or something like that. And that's where their story just kind of erupts. So the Hills, uh, according to Captured, uh, the book by Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman, Barney Hill had hired a lawyer. They tried to stop the story from going to print, but ultimately they were too late. So they approached John G. Fuller. John G. Fuller was in Exeter, New Hampshire. So were the Hills at the time. And they approached him because he, the, there was a, you know, a, a flap of sightings in occurring around that time in Exeter, New Hampshire. There's the Norman Muscarello incident that uh, got a lot of fame at the time, but it's at this, um, as John G. Fuller is basically out there trying to collect information to write an article about UFOs, they approach him and uh, he agrees to write The Interrupted Journey. And then a year later, 1966, you get The Interrupted Journey. So, yep. And you got the, oh, you got the newer copy. I got the, uh, the OG, man. Uh, it's downstairs, but. Um, it's hard. Finding John G. Fuller first editions is tough. Uh, especially in anything, uh, certainly not in fine or signed condition. There's some signed right. uh, out there, out there. There's a collection of signed ones, but the, the condition's so bad that I, I'm not sure, you know, so I've, yeah. uh, I've been scared to buy those. Yes. Um, but and they're only being sold as a lot. You have to buy like all 11 uh, and yeah. they're hundreds of dollars. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure yet. I'm going to wait. No, he's, he's uh, sitting on that folks. He's sitting on that. Meanwhile, I'm spending <laughs> 280 some odd dollars for, uh, you know, like 10 volumes of the journal for UFO studies. Oh, is that how much it was? You told me it was kind of expensive. I didn't know you were going into the hundreds though. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, what that um, figures look, anything in the UFO field at this point that stuff is only getting more expensive and more rare. And so much yeah. of it was just, you know, f f fucking Xeroxed. I mean, a lot of this old, you know, Saucerian books, the, the Gray Barker stuff, this stuff was mimeographed. It's all yeah. softback. It's, it's not going to last. And right. that stuff is getting more expensive by the minute. So, yes, you know, for collectors um, out there. And move, this is, move this is. This is my shout out to the uh, archives for the unexplained because I just bought three books from them. They have a library of UFO books. Uh, they're ge they're generally reasonably priced for for what they're selling, which is good stuff. Um, but like, uh, I just got my hands on a copy of John Womack's um, account of his abduction, which is rare. Got it for seventy five bucks, which is uh, reasonable. For, to me so um yeah uh, but is, archives it, is it off is it like first edition or is it just a copy 
it's first it like, edition. Like it's he didn't publish that many. I don't think uh, it's kind of like um, oh, it was like a self-published sort of yeah. So like uh, it's a hard book to find. Uh, I wasn't able to find any other copies anywhere else. I'm sure there are, but um, it's kind of like. Uh, do you have uh, an OG copy of uh, UFO Contact at Pascagoula, the old, um, the original edition? No, man, you want to talk about like super rare? It, it, it's rare because he self-published it himself, but it's like for a self-published book, it's really well done. Like the way in which uh, you, you know, because most UFO books have like, um, you know pictures in the center and stuff like that the pictures are throughout the text it's really nicely laid out uh really well done so um if you can get your hands on a copy of the og ufo contact at pascagoula by charles fixon it's it's really it's it's beautiful it's beautiful okay that's um, oh that's charles higgs uh the higson yeah 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 higson yeah so oh, i'm sorry uh, higson yeah uh, so, uh, yeah, ultimately it was like eight articles dedicated to VS Boas in Flying Saucer Review, something like that. Yeah, it's about eight. Um, uh, I, uh-huh. I have covered Betty and Barney Hill. I think it was episodes 54 and 55. If it, anybody's interested, um, you can go back and listen to those. So there are other kind of weird cases in um the late 50s there's two of them that are kind of um suggestive of abductions and the first is uh an incident uh involving a woman named flora evans and uh her friend named bernice mcintosh and this is february 17th 1958 um there's a pair of unique incidents that happen this day, and this is taking place in New Mexico. So described as a type of gossamer, um, which is like, you know, kind of like spider web, basically. Um, a strange white substance fell out of the sky during the day on February 17th over the town of Los Lunas. Uh, signs uh, of it could be seen all over the trees, power lines, clotheslines, uh, you know, around town, the substance allegedly fell over this town for about an hour. And like, if you live uh, anywhere where where you get fall weather, like this is Rich doesn't, so he's not going to know this. But like, when you when it starts to get uh, cold out and uh, it starts to get kind of yeah. foggy in the mornings, you yeah. can look up in the trees and you can see like these huge spider webs in the trees. Like, uh, and are it, they it, actual it, spider webs? Yes, they are actual spider webs. Uh, but oh. this stuff, um, they there wasn't any information on if they had it tested, I would assume they did, but it's kind of like angel hair in a way, like that. Yeah, only like it, it sounds like angel hair is what is what they're getting at. But uh, later that evening, two, two, about two hours away near uh alcalde flora evans and a friend bernice mcintosh were returning to albuquerque after checking on a cabin that they had in taos 
So the roads were strangely empty that night. The pair had passed only like a uh, company, a packing truck uh, along the way. So that was kind of weird. But the the skies were clear that night near the town of Alcalde. And I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but, you know, whatever. No, I Uh, think it's good. I think you got it. I think that's I think that's it. Okay. Uh, They became aware of a brilliant light coming up from behind them. Uh, This object was projecting beams downward in their direction. They kind of called it in a grid pattern of all things. And I think that that's like kind of describing like, you know, a square shaped light or something like that. And it was completely visible at times through the windshield of their 1953 Chrysler. So Flora pulled the car over. And then shortly after, the light goes out. A short while later, about a minute or two later, they resume their trip. And they were barely a mile down the road when the entire canyon next to them just like lights up. Uh, And the light is so bright that she fears that she's just going to drive off the road. So while Flora couldn't see the source of the illumination, Bernice did. And over to the right, hovering over uh, a river, was a disc-shaped object, quote, flat on the bottom, curved on the end, with a humped dome in the middle. They both thought that an explosion was about to happen. Um, they And the, the reason they thought it was an explosion, they assumed it was like a nuclear bomb test because, hey, it's New Mexico. That's where, you know, that kind of stuff happens. Right. So there was no sound. Ten seconds later, the light extinguishes. The two women make it back to Albuquerque without further incident and set out to report what they had seen. And they got a hold of the Weather Bureau, who informed them that at at around 8.13 p.m., uh, several pilots, military and civilian, reported a strange uh, luminosity in the vicinity of where Flora and Bernice had been. In the wake of the incident, Bernice decided to stay at Flora's house uh, because uh, she was like dog tired, like exhausted. Like she just did not have any energy. Uh, And Flora didn't understand why she didn't have any energy either. And she also noted that after this incident, while they were driving home, she was having trouble kind of coordinating her feet um when which is not a, a thing that you want to happen when you're driving but uh <laughs> they they made it back you know without without incident and flora believed that she had been exposed to radiation and given the fact that she worked in civil defense with the atomic energy commission she decided to go to a clinic and that she was familiar with uh, called the Lovelace Clinic. Um, She had already been receiving treatment there for a problem with her pituitary gland. So consulting with Dr. Lovelace, he he slipped that uh, he was sure that nothing went today, meaning that it wasn't anything that we had in the skies. So he kind of catches himself and is like, oh, I didn't say that. Um, He just like he just basically said, it's probably nothing. You know, something happens to your skin, come back and see me. But uh, if not, you know, don't worry about it. It's nothing. Um, but yeah. The, the interesting thing, the other interesting thing about this case is that uh, according to James E. McDonald, 
who interviewed Flora uh, and Bernice, they arrived home two hours later than they should have. No explanation for why that happened. Right. All right. So, so we got a little missing time. All right. Yes. Um, the second case here is the Jerry Irwin quote unquote abduction, maybe abduction. We don't really know, but you know, in between, you know, all this, we've got Jerry Irwin and I'm not going to get too deep into the woods on this one because I want to do an episode with David Booher, who wrote a phenomenal book about this case called no return. He actually ended up finding uh, Jerry Irwin, because if you read the account of Jerry Irwin, he just kind of disappears. Nobody knows what yeah. happens to him. And like in 2013, he tracked him down. He found him. And because uh, it sounded like maybe he was dead or disappeared or didn't exist right. anymore. Right. But uh, he did find him. But uh, Irwin was a, a Nike missile technician. And he was returning from leave on February 28th, 1959, headed for Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. And outside the city of Cedar City, Utah, he observed a bright glowing object overhead, eventually disappearing over a nearby ridge. He claimed it was so bright that it lit up a large area as it passed by. And Jerry assumed that the object was a plane that was going down. So he went out in search of it. And according to the account, he leaves a note on his steering wheel. He writes stop on the side of his car uh, for any passing motorists. And he heads off in the direction of this object. Mind you, he's heading into like some kind of heavy snow. So a local fishing game inspector discovers the car and the note and came back with a small group of uh, people to search for Jerry. And about an hour and a half later, he was found lying unconscious on the ground. Doctors claimed that Jerry was in perfect health and that he only appeared to be sleeping. Every attempt to wake him failed. And when he finally woke up uh, on March 2nd, he asked, were there any survivors? And in his sleep, he also kept, making mention of a uh, jacket on a bush. We don't know anything about that, but over the course of the next six months, Sherry would suffer from fainting spells. Uh, and once uh, he did fall into a deep sleep again, at one point he just got the urge to drive to uh, the crash site and look for his jacket. So in a trance like state, as it's said, he found it sitting on a bush with a piece of paper in the pocket and kind of like a it's like a pencil pushed through one of the um, the uh, holes for like a button. And kind of mysteriously, he burned the paper and he comes out of this trance. So it, it's just a very strange case, like all, all he eventually, you know, he presents himself to local authorities so he could be taken back to Fort Bliss. And he would eventually, you know, spend time in, in and out of hospitals for psychological evaluations until he finally walked off the base. Uh, he was seen again. Um, he ended up going to, uh, because he's from Idaho, he ended up going into this uh, place called the, um, 
the No Return Wilderness, which is like uh, it's a pretty untouched area. Um, it's called it, it has a longer name. It's called the Frank Church No Return Wilderness or something like that. But sounds bad. Sounds you don't yeah. go into the No Return Wilderness. He basically it's went there idea. for yeah. He went there for about three months uh, because he just needed to get away from the military, and then he ultimately you know. Uh, handed himself over to authorities and he was like shipped off to Germany and stuff. But like, it's, uh, it's a, it's one of those weird cases that um, don't really know what happened to him. Cause he just, wait. Uh, so did, you, did you say you, you got the book? Have you read it? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, I've read it. it. It's really good. It's, it's very thorough. Like he goes through okay. uh, and David Boer is of the idea that he was either abducted or possibly uh, a victim of the MK Ultra experiments. So it's right. it's, it's in that kind of ambiguous area. But um, following the the um, hills, uh, the published publication of the Interrupted Journey, there there are kind of there's one cash grab book that I have that I, that um, I'm going to summarize for you here. It's bad. I don't, I don't recommend anybody <laughs> buy it, but um, good summary. Yeah. It's uh it's a, it's a book about uh, two brothers named Jason and Robert Steiner who were abducted, allegedly abducted in upstate New York. The truth is like, this is, it really is a cash grab, you know, following it from a guy who, you know, kind of claim that he was because he claimed to be like a ghostwriter, but he's like, I'm using my real name now. But, uh, you know, like that kind of situation. But uh, um, this is uh, a summary uh, from a from a book that I found uh, quote in the summer of 1958, two brothers, Jason and Robert Steiner, were driving together at night when they endured a classic UFO sighting involving missing time. Later, hypnosis revealed that the pair had been abducted. On board the ship, they were, at different times, each placed in a cell with a lonely 19-year-old girl. She indicated that they were to engage in sexual intercourse, for the aliens were apparently conducting a study of human sexual habits. Both obliged, they later realized to their horror that the odd metallic smell the young woman gave off indicated that she must be a robot or some non-human life form. Our pristine skepticism forces us to reject the contempt the suggestion that the work which conveys this frightful tale, Malcolm Kent's The Terror Above Us, is in fact a novel rather than a sober account of unquestionable fact. I read this book. It is complete trash. It is god awful wait a second but are you saying that it's that it's like taken like all the incidents are taken from this other novel called the terror above us is that the implication here no the implication here is that like whoever wrote it i nobody knows who malcolm kent is malcolm kent's not a real name so okay uh, whoever, whoever published this book 
basically they read the interrupted journey um i they might have read okay. other ufo journals like they might have known about the vs boas incident and then he just kind of like you know fused it together to the point that uh yeah it's well, like this this okay, is like but, but is it is it trash because it's poorly written or because like the story they tell it's like well having sex with the weird alien you know it's not like that places it outside the realm of like, was it just it's, like, what about it made you feel like this is made up cash grab garbage? Because it feels like a male fantasy. It does not feel like, a, because like, like, I think it's, um, which one of the Steiner, I think it's Jason Steiner. The way that Malcolm Kent, uh, talks about Jason Steiner, Jason Steiner is basically this like, playboy bachelor who dates three women at a time and you know it's just like come on man don't don't do this they're like computer engineers in 1958 and stuff and it's it, it's just it's male okay. fantasy top and bottom basically okay, okay. But, it, it 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 sounds like it's written for entertainment not written for yes. hey something yes. really weird happened to these people that's yes. been that's traumatized them Another thing that like tips you off makes you think that it's definitely not is that the psychologist in this case reaches out to the journalist and says, I need you to help me document this thing. And I'm like, no, 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 I do not think so. This is not how this happens. <laughs> All right. Rob Christopherson yeah. weighing in, folks. Avoid yeah. this book at all costs. Malcolm Kent, Avoid. no bueno. No. So there is an interesting ancillary phenomenon here that doesn't get talked about, isn't usually considered uh, when talking about abductions. And I don't, and, and I just don't think that people don't know about it. And it's teleportations. Ever heard of it? Probably not, because not a lot of UFO people talk about teleportations. But particularly in South America in the 1960s, there are a lot of accounts of people ending up in these like fog banks, these fog clouds, and end up transported hundreds of miles away from where they've been. So to give you kind of an idea... Flying Saucer Review started to print articles about teleportations, people mysteriously appearing in strange locations, often hundreds of miles away from where they've been. And one of the earliest cases of this that has allegedly been documented, I don't know, you know, the veracity of this, but uh, October 25th, 1593, a Spanish soldier who had been with a regiment in Manila in the Philippine Islands appeared in Mexico City with no explanation for how he got there. Uh, he was armed uh, with a piece of information that would ultimately prove his story. Don Gomez Perez Desmarinas, uh, governor of the Philippines, was in fact dead. And if that uh, information had not reached Mexico City by that time. So they basically uh, assumed he was a deserter. They threw him in prison. And he remained there for weeks until news reached uh, the governor uh, in Mexico that he was dead, murdered, in fact, on the day that the soldier showed up in Mexico City. So 
the Inquisition ordered uh, the man back to Manila where a full investigation was done and confirmed that the man was in Manila on the 24th. So that's kind of your one of your earliest cases of this. But um, 1959, an Argentinian businessman uh, was traveling back to southern Argentina and stopped at Bahia Blanca looking to continue his trip the next morning. So the next morning, as he stepped into his car, a, quote, cloudy mass enveloped the whole car. He lost consciousness for a period of time, later waking up in the countryside without his car. He waved down a passing car, asking for a lift back to Bahia Blanca, only to find that he was now 1,155 kilometers or 717 miles away. Next, the businessman uh, glanced at his watch and he found that only a couple of minutes had passed. So he hails a cab to the police station where they phone the department in Bahia Blanca, giving them the description and registration number. And sure enough, they find his car just like a few meters from the hotel. Engine's still running. Engine still running. The best part of the whole story. Yeah, the engine best. is still running. He's 700 miles away. Yeah, 700 miles away. And like Bahia Blanca, is, um, it's a hot spot in Argentina. It's kind of one of those uh, places, one of those cities where a lot of UFO kind of activity is reported. Yeah, the cloudy mass, The I, I mean, this is a whole, you know, Astonishing Legends episode you know, the, the, I don't know, remember what it was, Flight 19 or something, the the airplane that goes into the weird cloud. Oh, no, that's Bruce suddenly, Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's always, the, it's always the cloud. And and that one yeah. comes up in a lot of these stories that you're going to relate. The, yes. the mist that appears and then suddenly teleportation happens. And yes. that is the best. Yep. Um, so uh, the next gentleman, Olaf, Nielsen, this is August 25th, 1960, quote, I was walking near Humstad on the afternoon of August 25th, 1960. The spot was lonely. On one side, a wood, and on the other side, a field. An ideal place for me who has to study. Suddenly, I felt myself caught as uh, it were in dizziness and sucked up into the air. Despite my terror, I had the presence of mind to note what was happening. At a height of some 20 meters from the ground was a flying saucer, and I was being drawn straight up to find straight up to it. Finding myself in empty space like this and carried off in such a manner, I lost consciousness. When I came round again, I found myself stretched out on a very soft couch inside a small cabin. The cabin of a was of a pale green color, lit by faint diffused light that had no source. One would have said that the light came from the walls themselves. Suddenly a door opened and a being came in. He was every way similar to us, except that he was wearing an overall. He approached, smiled at me, and in my own language, begged my pardon for what, for the way in which I had been carried off. <laughs> We're very sorry we had to interrupt your day like this, Mr. Bond. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Olaf Nielsen, who found himself thus taken up uh, aloft like uh, Elijah in a whirlwind, went on went on to say he was taken very rapidly to a subterranean space base. 
He continued, quote, it seemed at first as though I was out in the open, but instead of that, I found that I was in a large, brightly lit cavern. In my curiosity, I asked the guide whether there were many of these bases on Earth. After a moment of hesitation, he replied that such bases had existed on Earth for very many years past. (laughs) Some were in Central Asia, where thousands... Where thousands of years ago, the guide added, there used to be flourishing cities. Others, he said, are on the high plateau of the uh, Pamirs in Central Africa and in South America, where the space visitors had adapted for their own purposes, secret pre-Incan sites. Um, In a subterranean hangar, Nielsen said that he was shown several saucers and also an apparatus for setting up a protective magnet curtain to defend the entrance to the base. His guide explained that these were precautionary measures directed not against the people of our Earth, but against the Dark Ones, bellicose space beings who who come from the vicinity of Orion and who would like to conquer the Earth. I would like to hear more about these bellicose ones, the Dark Ones. The dark this is the first I've heard, and and I I don't know why we've been kept uh we we've been kept in the dark so long. This was 1960. It, oh, thank God! Was. Thank God, the dark ones have been kept at bay. They have they have been. <laughs> so, uh, uh, there was a teleportation in Kinoshita, Tokyo, Japan, November 19th, 1963. While traveling to Rio Gazaki, uh, let's see if I can I can nail this one. Uh, Ibaraki Ken, north of Tokyo, to play a round of golf with two other men, Mister Kinoshita, a bank manager in Tokyo, and his passengers were 150 yards behind a black car when quote a puff of something gaseous like white smoke or vapor gushed out from somewhere around the black car causing the car to vanish. Unfortunately, he could not remember the registration number of the car in order to track it down. Whatever happened to those people? Right. They just vanished. There's there's a car in front of you. Suddenly it gets enveloped in something and vanishes. That is so disturbing. That's so disturbing. Because we're hearing about the people who teleport and then arrive somewhere and then live to tell the tale. What about the people who teleport and that's the last we ever see of them? Right. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I cut this up wrong, but I'll 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 finish the the final uh, teleportation case and then get back to the uh, um, early abduction cases that I messed up here. But uh, Dr. Gerardo Vidal, along with okay. his wife, Rafa de Vidal, traveled to Chascomas uh, to attend a family reunion. After leaving the party, their plan was to travel 150 kilometers or 93 miles to Maipu uh, to visit family. They followed another couple headed the same way along National Route Number 2. Uh, the couple ahead of them arrived on time, but the Vidals never made it. 48 hours later, the family um, that they were going to visit the Rapalini family received a call from the Argentinian consulate in Mexico city on the line was Dr. Vidal who informed them that 
Oddly, they would be flying back to Argentina and would inform them all of all the details, um, you know, later. Uh, like, again, this feels like a multi-part TikTok. It really does. It's, it's just like, we'll fill you in, you know, hit subscribe for a plus, you know, part two, whatever. But like, uh, you know, while leaving Chescomos, the car entered a dense fog that had appeared suddenly. Two days went by, and the couple found themselves in the car, the sun harshly hitting the car. They were parked in an unfamiliar lane, had pain on the back of their neck, and felt like they had slept for many hours. The surface of the car looked as if it had been burned with a blowtorch, but still ran just fine. Uh, their watches had also stopped. They drove around to get their bearings a bit and asked some some of the locals where they were. And they learned that they were, in fact, in Mexico. So, you know, it's a far cry away from Argentina. Strangely, Dr. Vidal's car, uh, Pergo 403, was sent to the United States for scientific study. Oh, my God. That's that's the one you have trouble with. Peugeot. It's a Peugeot. My bad. Okay. Uh, and Scott Philbrook uh, would be very upset with you. He could be upset with me. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> he was given a new car. Uh, but uh, two days later, a family member in uh, Maipu named uh, Martin Rapolini claimed. I'm that sorry, the where family- were these people? Wait, Rob, where were these people? What? They were in Maipu. It's not pronounced right. I know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to do like the U with the uh, accent on it. Like I look, folks, I was busy. OK, there was a lot that went into this. This thing is 30 pages long. It's it's long. You said they were in. They said they were. You said they were in your poo. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, so Martin Rapolini, he claims that this never happened the phone call never happened the families were not related he tried to distance himself from it um but like you know there were other uh family members that were like yeah this did happen um all that stuff but uh from the flying saucer review article about this about this case quote on the very same night when the Vidals mysteriously vanished, a man was received into the uh, Maipu hospital for medical treatment. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> this man said. They've got a at, hospital for your poo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. This man said that, he, that as he was driving along National Route Number 2, a strange fog appeared in front of him, but that it it had shortly afterwards lifted and moved away, leaving him badly shaken and feeling unwell. A year after the fame Chascomas teleportation, Rafa de Vidal died of leukemia. That's that's not good. That's that's not good at all. So no, that that makes it that makes it sound like something bad happened. Yeah. Um, there was a follow-up article, um, quote, from another source, we learned that in 1968, a newly married Brazilian couple were on their honeymoon and had stopped for a rest during their journey by car through the southern Brazilian site of Rio, Gra- Rio Grande do Sul. They were sitting in their Volkswagen 
when suddenly they were overcome by a powerful drowsiness. When they recovered consciousness, they were allegedly in Mexico like the Vidals before them. This case concerns two young men uh, who in 1968 were traveling in a jeep in the same area when somewhere near Porto Alegre, they allegedly ran into a bank of white fog. And the next thing they knew uh, was that they were in an unknown landscape, which turned out to be Mexico. This is like over and over <laughs> what again. Is right. Everyone's ending up in Mexico. Now, this used to happen a lot when I went to USC. People would go to a party, <laughs> and the next thing they know, <laughs> they're in Mexico. They're waking yeah, up in Tijuana. So yep. I, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe these are related phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, there was also a gentleman who was riding a horse in uh, the Lower Roque in Brazil uh, on the evening of April 20th, 1969. He was riding his horse to the pharmacy. And somewhere near Atuku, he saw some strange lights and mysteriously blacked out. He awoke at dawn without his horse, his body placed on some rocks on the banks of the uh, Paranabia, some 400 kilometers to, or 248 miles away. Upon arriving home, he found that his horse had returned on its own and that other people had seen mysterious lights uh, the night that he disappeared. So it's just hmm. like this is like the ancillary weird stuff that is, um, yeah, it's a uh, well. Okay, if we're comparing these to abductions, let's let's make the obvious point. I do not find that it is a hallmark of alien abduction stories that people are abducted and then returned to Earth far, far, far from where they were picked up. You know what I mean? They're typically put right back where they were found. So these are these sound like they're kind of different in terms of people. It's like. Uh, I never hear I was abducted by a UFO, you know, in one country or one state. And then the next thing I know, I'm wandering in the forest and it's hundreds or thousands of miles from where I got picked up. Right. Do you ever hear that? Um, a couple cases, but nothing. Yeah, like not the majority. Them. No, they're not. Yeah. They're not in the majority. Um, they're generally pretty much put back. Uh not too far yeah. from where they're taken. This is the teleportation cloud. I would like to know why the cloud does it, how the cloud does it, because it seems crazy pointless. The, the only thing I will say is that the Vidal case kind of has hallmarks of, of an abduction just because of the physical symptoms that they were feeling. Feels kind of like yeah, an abduction yeah. had taken place. All right. Uh, yeah, maybe. But uh, but yeah, but it's not like, you know, there was never stories of later remembering. Oh, my gosh. Now, I, right. you know, right. in the interim, here's what happened. But it, it is this ancillary thing that is uh, it, it, it's interesting because it's, you know, people being taken, people going missing. It's still it's still kind of weird. But um, and, and it feels like. I would like to hear the most, most recent cases of this because we live in a world now where this stuff can get can get corroborated very quickly. I mean, if you, you know, you've got a cell phone, everyone's got a cell phone, there's Google Earth, like, like very quickly, if you or I 
we're suddenly enveloped by a, <laughs> a white fog. And the next thing we know, we're somewhere else. We could very quickly get somewhere, get online. You know, you could make those connections pretty quick of, okay, I was just there. Now I'm here and mm-hmm. prove it through phone and internet so fast that, that, that I'm, I'm kind of excited for one of those cases to crop up. And of course, to then not believe it at all because it's so easy to fake. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Rich Haddam party pooper is on the, uh, is on the line, you know, just, uh, you know, just shooting it down already. Um, but, um, there are some, uh, interesting, there's an interesting, uh, you know, abductions, attempted abduction during the, uh, French UFO wave of 1954. Um, there was an attempted abduction in uh, Tehran, Iran. Uh, the incident was carried in the local paper, Etela At. Um, a few when days say, ago. When you say Tehran, Iran, quickly, it sounds like you're saying Tehran, Iran. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. For, I'm like, uh, what's Tehran, Iran? Oh, Tehran, Iran. Iran. Got, okay, yes. go ahead. Uh, quote, a few days ago, one of our correspondents reported from Mahalat that a marvelously luminous object had landed near there and that many farmers had been impressed by its strange and colorful appearance. It was hemispherical in form and emitted multicolored beam of lights, beams of lights. It only landed for a brief period. And in the meantime, more and more of the country folk were crowding near to look at it, but nobody would go too close to it. So great was their fear. The central part of the object was of metal and was less bright than the rest. While the crowd of people was growing larger and larger, the object suddenly shot straight upwards into the sky and vanished. The affair had provoked great discussion among the populace. Following uh, uh, upon this report, we then received another one from a resident, uh, Shamasbad who walked into our editorial offices this morning and stated at 6.30 a.m. yesterday, just as he was coming out of his house, he saw a luminous object resembling a brightly shining star. It was at a distance of about 100 meters from him, and he estimated its length as about 5 meters. He, was already, he had already heard of flying saucers and at once realized that this was one. Approaching more closely, he perceived a short young man standing on a circular piece of metal in the middle of the radiant object and looking around him searchingly. The witness was now only 20 meters from the saucer and could see that the pilot was laughing at the terrified expression on his face. Suddenly, however, the machine shot up into the air at an unbelievable speed and vanished. The following episode occurred in Amaria Street here in Tehran. A Mr. Jesemi uh, Fili, who lives in that street, informs us that at 2.30 a.m. last Friday, he being at that time on the second floor of his house, he saw a luminous white flying object which became stationary at a distance of about 25 meters, 65 feet from him. Lights were shining from the rear end of the object and from its sides. Inside the object, he could see what appeared to be a small man dressed in black clothing 
and wearing on his head a strange mask shaped like the trunk of an elephant. Said Mr. Feely, I was standing with both hands on the bar of my balcony, looking with astonishment at this strange object, when I suddenly felt as though I were being drawn up towards the object as though by a magnet. Mr. Feely cried out in terror and awakened the neighbors. Meanwhile, the luminous object shot straight up into the sky and vanished in the twinkling of an eye. It emitted sparks as it rose up. So we've got kind of a dude who may have been, you know, they they might have tried to abduct him, but. um, Yeah, but it didn't work out. That's and that's a weird one. That, yeah. I don't hear that a lot. That it's right. like, oh, something happened. I saw a UFO. I started getting pulled up, but then, but then, you know, something happened and it just never, like, I, I was sort of expecting that story to go on, like, oh, but then he realized then that he was missing two hours. And then later right. he remembered everything that happened on the UFO. Cause again, you hear that a lot. Yeah. Um, so there, there are, uh, other notable early abduction cases, and, and again, we're this is um, there were two letters received by the conduct committee from witnesses who'd said they'd read the interrupted journey and felt compelled to share their stories. So in March of 1968, the Colorado Project, otherwise known as the conduct committee, received a letter from a woman in Texas who had allegedly been involved in an abduction like experience in 1930. She explained how she had been plagued with nightmares and anxiety for years following the incident, so much so that it was leading to deteriorating health. However, she refused to tell her family because she thought that they would believe that she had, quote, lost her marbles. So the experience occurred as she was driving in the family station wagon in an isolated area of Texas. And this is her letter, quote, I remember turning a, a curve on, a, on the road and running up to the underside of a huge thing sitting by the road. I was within a few steps of it, almost under one side of it when I stopped. It was sort of shiny gunmetal color, round and shaped like two dinner plates face to face with a dome in the upper top side. It was about 100 feet across, about 15 feet thick. There was a small slender door and the door chute let down to the ground with steps on the inside of it. The backside of the ship sat on the ground, but the downhill side was braced up with two slender legs uh, with round plates on the ground as feet. There was one man of normal size, I'd say about five feet, 10 inches to six feet tall and about 165 to 180 pounds. This person came walking in the road to meet me and forced me to stop while he talked to me. Or at least I think he talked, although I did not see his lips move, and he turned his face away and looked down. While I seemed to hear him speaking, several other persons came walking up behind him. I'd say eight to ten. I took those persons to be a troop of Boy Scouts, about eight to ten years old average size. However, when near me, I saw that there was a big difference. They looked like, uh, I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to say these out loud. She's basically saying that they look like Japanese kids or Chinese kids. Right. Yeah. 
she says it in unflattering terms. Uh, at least one of them. So she says they look like they basically look like they were Asian. They had very large slanted eyes, very large cheekbones and very thin lips. And they did not look like children, but adults. They smiled at me, but did not speak. I had to smile back because they were sort of pushing each other around horseplay, like each one trying to get in front of the other to see better and acting like kids will. So all right. She's essentially describing grays in a way, like totally. Yeah, and again, this is apparently in 1930. She's describing grays. She's describing the eyes, uh, and she's also describing uh, telepathic communication. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I could I could hear him speaking, but he wasn't speaking with his mouth. I just understood his thoughts. You know, they were right inside yep. my head. 1930. We're getting yep. this. The clothing they wore, I at first took to be a, be scout uniforms, tan in color. But when they came up close to me, I saw that they were there were no pockets, buttons, edges, wrinkles, or pocket flaps. Very clean, neat, and nice. They wore little tight caps cut like baseball caps with little narrow bills. The larger man was dressed the same way. Offhand, the whole bunch seemed like a scoutmaster and his troop of scouts. We had some little argument. He said, lady, you'll have to leave the highway and go around as we have the road blocked here. I said, what is that? Pointing to this thing, saucer. He ignored this question and said, never mind. You'll just have to go around. We want the road left clear and open and can't let you through here. You are a wonderful driver and you can make it all right. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Thanks, alien dude. Yeah. The man was directing her to drive off the road into a rocky gully and then up another hillside to rejoin the road some distance away. You'll be fine. It's fine. You'll be fine. You're an exquisite driver. (laughs) I saw your skills. They're mad skills. Just go. Get we could just have cast you in the in, in the Fast and Furious movies. Really could have, lady. You clearly live your life a quarter mile at a time. Yeah. For those ten seconds, you're free. <laughs> yep, yep. I can see it. I can see. I can picture an alien saying that. <laughs> yep. Nineteen thirty, ladies and gentlemen. Nineteen thirty. I still gripped and argued and said, I can't pull this big car down through that creek and and rocks. I tear my car all to pieces and I can never get out the upper side. And besides, you don't own this highway. (laughs) (laughs) It's very Texas. This this lady is from Texas. Yeah. But somehow I couldn't help myself and dazedly drove very slowly and fearfully down into this creek and rough canyon. <laughs> I realized that the man was walking right alongside uh, along the side of the car at my elbow. I felt very safe then and was able to make the crossing and was no longer afraid. I wonder why. You know, it reminds me of the stories where, you know, the alien uh, points at the road and says, you see, as you were driving, do you see the footsteps next to you? 
I was with you the whole time. <laughs> and then they say, <laughs> and then you say, yes, but what about that whole stretch that was so difficult when I didn't see your footsteps at all? And the yeah. alien says, that's when I was driving. Yeah. I got, I got in the car. You were then in the passenger seat. I was behind the wheel. That's when I drove. So. And now we, um, we we get the 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 updated version of that thanks to Rich Adam the uh, <laughs> the footprints needed an update <laughs> needed an update <laughs> oh god um this was about 9:30 to 10 a.m. so this is in like the morning here and it is the last thing i remember until i came to myself walking in on my home porch at about 12 o'clock that night, about 15 miles distant. Where I was, where I went, what happened to me those many hours, I have no idea. Neighbors had driven along that area during the day and later told my family that they saw my car parked on the hill beside the canyon, or beyond the canyon. My dad was forming a search party when, they, when I came in. That I was taken aboard the saucer and carried away God knows where. I have a simple doubt, but if this did not happen as I remember it, then what did? I want to know so badly that I'm sick. Something did happen. What? I want to know the truth, the whole truth, regardless of what it was, end quote. Okay, so she, so she doesn't claim, she has no conscious memory of being mm -hmm. abducted, but she nope. suspects that's what happened. But as far as we know, she did not, there's no follow-up to this. We don't know if there was a hypnotic regression or somehow later other memories broke through, right? <clears throat> no. Um, and in fact, she, she asked the Condon committee and offered herself to be hypnotized, but the Condon committee said no. And to be honest, the Condon committee only investigated one case through uh, hypnosis. We're going to cover that on the next episode, though. We're going to cover that one on the next episode. That's the Herbert Shermer oh, okay. abduction. Oh, the Shermer. Yeah. The Michael, the Michael Shermer abduction? I can't no, wait Herbert, to hear about it. Herbert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the Michael Shermer abduction. Yes. Totally amazing. Uh, you, the story you didn't know. Um, but, no, um, not at all. The the other letter the committee received was from a man who claimed to have witnessed multiple UFOs over his life and had his first abduction experience in uh, 1957. Uh, we don't have his actual letter. Michael Swords couldn't find it, but we do have uh, the kind of committee's response to that letter, which allegedly contains uh, a lot of the details. Um, quote, you are asleep. You suddenly wake up but are unable to move and are extremely conscious of an all-pervading prickling sensation. You realize the symptoms because this has happened hundreds of times before. Something is about to happen. What is uncertain? But you, uh, but you know consciously as a result of past and per precedent-setting experiences that no longer need your you fear the event to take place because at any time subsequent you can instantly terminate the experience at will should it tend to become too obnoxious or terrifying five dark 
complexioned and uniformed individuals are present and gazing down at you. A preview, one suggests with a smile. The others are silent. You agree, hinting that they can detain you only for the extent you choose. Nods and reassurances. They know it is true. Pajama clad. You accompany them outside and seemingly zip into a portable medical examination room completely equipped. They switch to white smocks and gather around, two at each side and one at the head, as you are casually strapped down. They converse jovially in a language unknown and not even faintly familiar to you. Blaze. A hell of a name, you think secretly, advises you can talk through him. Fine. What is the purpose, you ask? He laughs. Need to examine. Find out condition before flight. There are differences. He scrapes considerable epidermis off your feet. Interesting, but rather unusual, is your thought. And didn't realize so much could be scraped off. Conversation. The other individual on your left and one on the right, meanwhile, examine your abdomen and genitals. Curious. One now holds a six-inch needle poised over your abdomen. Hey, none of that. It might hurt. Blaze reassures. Relax. It won't hurt. Well, doubtfully, he is right, strangely enough. But what a needle! Assisted by the other on your right, the medic at your head examines your eyes and face. Blaze prompts. Repeat the words he speaks after him. Okay. The medic utters single words, presumably, and you repeat them after, after him consecutively as he flashes various lights in your eyes and seems to make measurements. You guess that he is counting in his tongue, and you are aware that the next number would be six. He utters a word. It's not easy to pronounce. Six, you exclaim. And all five individuals burst into laughter. You're all right, Blaze laughs. <laughs> a rather tall, uniformed individual enters as your straps are removed. Top brass, you assume. Take it easy with this one. It's new to him. Blaze admonishes. Agreement. They accompany you on board a ship fleeting... Uh, glimpsed or impressioned as cigar-shaped and see that you are comfortably positioned and strapped into a bunk. They leave. You await movement and sense its, and sense its start. You experience a feeling of intense acceleration. Too intense. You lose consciousness. After a lapse of time, you are in your own bed and fully awake. Where the heck were they taking you? You receive vague impressions. The planet, zero one, louder, you suggest. No response. Gone. Finis. Um, so, uh, as you can tell, the Condon Committee is rather snarky about it. Yeah, there's uh, like I can't tell if it's if it's terse because they're just like taking notes really quick and you know right. just trying to jot things down as, as it's being explained, <clears throat> or or if th this is their choice is just sort of like right. well okay so here's what they say this happened you okay okay let me repeat back to you what you just said yeah you this you that it, it is there there is a level of contempt in the tone yes uh, the two investigators on this case, David Saunders and Victor Ramey, uh, dismissed it 
as a psychological aberration. And the reason that they agreed to examine the case was because of his credentials. He was an engineer. So pretty dude with a, a decent standing. Um, but um, so a couple of other cases that uh, were reported at the time and uh, ended up, uh, I think I found them in the, uh, the Humcat Um at 5.45 p.m. on November 17, 1967, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, David Seawalt, 13, started for home, but strangely didn't arrive until 6.30 p.m. Only, he didn't just walk through the door. He ran and hid under his bed, yelling, I've been chased by a flying saucer. And... Um, Interestingly enough, he was missing one of his shoes, which was located uh, uh, outside later on. Five months passed before he had the first nightmare of the experience he'd had in the missing 45 minutes. For some reason, they put this boy under uh, regressive hypnosis, which, again, seriously, stop doing this. I, I'm just I'm just going to say I don't think hypnosis is a great thing. I just don't like the more and more that I'm reading lately. It's It's just. Don't no. Well, why? Especially like what's what, what's the main what's your main thing? Is it that it, it it's too traumatic for people, or it's not no, trustworthy? Or I don't think what? it's as trustworthy as people think because people are uh, a lot of what I'm reading these days is uh, what comes forth from it is an influenced by the investigator in many cases, like. You can see in some leading questions that it's just, it's not good. That's and so weird. I, I feel like I, like when I'm reading things that I know are taken from hypnosis, I, I, I try to find that stuff and I feel like I'm not finding a lot of it personally. But the other thing is, and this is from the debunker's point of view, they're always saying, oh, you know, people go in and get hypnotized and then suddenly they remember these alien abductions. And I, I, right. that's the other thing. I don't know if I've ever heard a story of a person who goes in to be hypnotized to stop smoking and then suddenly they're revealing an alien abduction. I think most people have a conscious memory of something happening. Right. They, they, they remember a lot. And the hypnosis only comes as, well, let's hypnotize you and see if we can find out more of what happened. There seem to be a couple of blank spots. Let's see if we can fill them in. It's not like, oh, this is something that only happens on, you know, we have to, you know, completely you know, malign hypnosis completely. But again, that's my, that's my point of view. Right. I haven't been reading the same cases you have, so who knows? Right. Um, I read through a... Um a paper by Thomas Bullard who presented a lot of the criticisms for that method uh, of retrieval. And um, he, he made a lot of interesting points. He um, it was in the journal of UFO studies. Um, but uh, well, what's the, yeah. is it, but is his point just like, like because I have heard the argument of because hypnotic regression can be questioned why don't we simply dismiss all of that just set it right. aside then in other words as a way of of challenging debunkers because right. since we know that's what they always go for let's just not even mention it let's just let's just stick to the cases where people have conscious recollection there's more than enough of that and let's right. begin the argument there 
and right. and and not just turn into the old, oh, let me guess, they were hypnotized. And before you know it, they're remembering all kinds of things. Right. And and I'm not and I'm not dismissing like all abduction accounts out of hand. It's just uh, there are some that in which the witnesses seem to be led by investigators. That's my only criticism. And I will be getting into that in later episodes further down the line. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, uh, but uh, there are some investigators that I'm not a big fan of and we'll be talking. About oh, that. like certain is certain hypnotists you've got a bone yes. to pick with. Yes. Not um, not necessarily even with the method. It's certain practitioners. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and some who are not medical doctors, but learned how to do hypnosis and, you know, but uh, they learned in the circus and carnivals. <laughs> right. Um, but um, uh, David Seawalt uh, recounts an abduction like event in which an orange light beam from a low hovering UFO brings him on board. And once inside, he's undressed and examined by a being, quote, with a rough brown skin like crocodiles, end quote. This being was assisted by three other beings that looked very similar. He claimed that they spoke to one another and that their voices sounded similar to the noise a kazoo makes. They only had four fingers. David was wheeled into an operating room, performed a procedure, and released him from the UFO. The doctor in this case believed that David was recalling an appendectomy that had taken place years earlier. Well, sure, that happens all the time. I think we mm -hmm. all know someone who's undergone a medical procedure and then years later remembers it as an alien abduction. I mean, oh, I, I, I mean, everybody I know has that story. So this makes a lot yes. of sense as an as an explanation. Yeah, uh, I've never had appendicitis, so I I don't know. I I don't have any real world experience. I don't know how intense those hallucinations are when uh, stuff starts going to hell. But um, oh yeah. Uh, there's a, a, a report here from Lake Mason in Marquette County, Wisconsin, on uh, May 30th. I believe this is 1965. Uh, quote, while sunbathing on her lake cottage roof, Mrs. M.G. Confidential saw a shiny disc-shaped object approaching in a direct line from over the lake. She described it as metallic, about 40 feet wide, and then with a dome on top and a row of windows through which she was able to see first one, then two occupants. The object hovered over her cottage a uh, lot less than 200 feet away as tripod landing gear emerged from underneath. The witness on the roof was looking down on the landed object when she saw the first figure at the window. When he saw her on the roof, he beckoned to another figure who appeared at a second window. They seemed to be rather short uh, with large bald heads. They stared at Mrs. M.G. for what seemed to be a long time. The next, the, the witness recalled, was watching the object move rapidly away in the direction of the setting sun. There was an apparent time lapse of at least four hours. So... That's incident number one. Uh, and Mrs. McGee decides to do self-hypnosis. Uh, okay. The witness was able to recall walking up to the UFO and being led up a stairway and into the vehicle by the two occupants. 
They were under four feet tall, and one of them held a small box, which he then opened. Inside was a dark-colored crystal that gave off a vapor or smoke. He held it in front of her face, and the witness jumped back. But when he again passed it close to her face, she discovered that the fumes were odorless. The next thing she remembers was being back on her roof watching the object depart. So, okay. Um, do you think the aliens gave her crack cocaine? It's a tough call. It's a tough call because, you know, like this is. The, uh, you yeah. know, are they coming yeah. here to, to, are they coming here to deal drugs? Uh, this is something we Maybe. have not really discussed. No, All no, right. it well, isn't. Um, dealers from outer space. Dealers from outer space. It's, uh, I, I, you know, that's a, that's a new sci-fi flick coming to you soon. Dealers from outer space. It's, um, did, did, is, did you, did you catch the quote where she said that, um, she heard the words, though the lead alien was not moving his mouth. She could yeah. hear the words. This is some really <laughs> primo shit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They were um, they were indeed right. saying that. Okay. All right. I just um, wanted to. Yeah. We, there's something you know we got to warn the kids in the schoolyard about. Yeah, we totally do. Uh, don't don't trust aliens. They don't trust the dealers. Don't trust those. Look, it, dealers. Puts, it puts a whole it puts a whole new light on the uh, aerial school landing. Oh God! Yeah, it really does. No, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to recontextualize that for the rest of my life now. Um, yeah, hey, hey, kids, first one's free. Yeah, I'll be stopping by later. Um, you know, and this is why Professor Christopherson tells us don't like the UFO. Don't do it. You don't know. Don't, you don't, don't know do what you, you anything. You you could be don't high. lick the UFO. Don't smoke the UFO. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't smoke the UFO. I think that's that's what Cheech and Chong based their movie on, uh, where yeah. the van was built out of weed, because yeah. they they were aware of a UFO that was built out of weed. Must have that landed. Yeah. yeah. So these things, it all it all comes full circle. It's all yeah, full they, circle. They smoked the hell out of that UFO. I had to have. Um, yeah, and crop um, circles. So what what are those? What are those crops? Right, like. Here's the thing. Can we do an experiment then um, and have different UFOs take different drugs to see how it would do like like they did to spiders back in the day? So we could see the pattern. Oh, I love of that. that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's like here's the spider on caffeine. Here's yes. the spider on marijuana. Here's the spider on LSD. And yeah. then they show you the webs that they make. I love that experiment. Let's I let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, let's see what uh what those uh crop circles will look like. Um September yeah. 3rd, Mrs. MG would have another strange encounter. Um Quote, Mrs. M.G. had retired, but suddenly found herself awake and driving on a rural asphalt road somewhere near uh, De Plain, uh, Illinois, when she came to a spot where a man was standing on the road waving a lantern. She stopped, believing there had been an accident and got out. The man was tall, normal in appearance, except for a very high forehead, and was dressed in a white coverall with a 
metal bucket at the waist. She was led across the grass to an area that was suddenly brightly lighted from an opening door of a large round mass sitting on legs uh, about 100 feet from the road. There were three more cars stopped along the road, and the occupants of these were also being escorted into the object. Their abductors were did all the, over. Did the abductors? Did the abductors compliment the driving of any of these people? Man, they should have. They really should have, because I, I think that I'm just going to put this out here because I know there are a ton of aliens that listen to this podcast, and nobody can convince me otherwise. Compliment the driving. It goes a long way. It truly does. Yeah. Even in this day and age, if you compliment your victims driving it goes a long way it puts people I, it, at ease it puts them at ease and conversely if you are abducted compliment the aliens driving yes seriously do you know how hard it is to make a, a you know a disc shaped object do that like falling leaf thing it's not easy yeah it's not easy no. No, maybe if we're all just a little bit kinder to each other, these abduction experiences could be more pleasant for everyone. Seriously. He was the only one who spoke during the experience, and he did so in a language unknown to the witness. The other human looked Italian and was younger. The four tall occupants each appeared to be in charge of the four abductees and in appearance were identical. The room was filled with electronic equipment and control knobs, and telepathically she told that she would not recall the incident. The next thing she remembered was being led outside again by her host and then being helped into her car. The other three men were likewise being assisted to their cars. Mrs. M.G. made a U-turn and drove straight home, where she went directly to bed. Self-hypnosis indicated that a medical examination had been conducted, end quote. Um, I think the final one of note, and again, we'll be covering Herbert Shermer on the next episode, but um, there is the abduction of Jose Antonio da Silva, who um, we, we covered on episode 80. And in short, you know, Jose Antonio da Silva, he was, uh, he worked for the military. He had a job in like security with the military he went fishing in Bebedoro, and he was captured by um, short figures with long beards, big heads, kind of like, you know, um, weird looking like the their heads were like very oversized. And he was taken to this room. He was he was kind of like blindfolded. Uh, he had like a hood or something put over his head and he was led to um, an object which I have described as the poor man's UFO because it looks like a trash can with two lids on it. Uh, it's the best way I can describe it, like oversized lids, kind of like um, uh, almost like an umbrella, the way that they were kind of um just the way that they were constructed it, it was a very diy project it, it looked like but he was taken <laughs> to this one room where um 
there was this mural on the wall that made it seem like uh, he was in a pediatrician's office. You know, kind of like those murals where you see like, you know, trucks and stuff on the wall, things that would be attracted to kids. Oh, you got y'all are missing this, though, right now, because uh, Rich is uh, he's got a cat on his shoulders right now. It's, it's pretty great. Oh, God. M- M- Monkey loves getting up and, and just just kind of curling around my neck like a scarf. Yes. Uh, and, you know, really digging in there, really digging in there. Oh, uh, God, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. But Thank you. Uh, Thank you. He's, you know, led to this <laughs> led to this pediatrician's office, encounters more <laughs> of these big-headed bearded aliens, and they speak a language he doesn't understand, but one of them starts to draw pictures with a stick uh in the uh like the sand. And he comes to believe that these aliens wanna arrange an intergalactic arms deal with Earth. What? Yes. Are you serious? Yes. Yeah. You should. You should go listen to that episode eighty. It's a very oh. strange story. That, that that is. I've never heard that one. I gotta check yeah. that out. Yeah, Jose Antonio da Silva. Um, folks, that's it. We've done it. <laughs> this is. Oh God. Okay. Well, what part have we one. What have we learned? Uh, we have we learned. Have learned the bullet's yeah. wrong, right? Okay, if you say so. <laughs> well, well, the, the 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 abductions did not begin in 1967, right? Well, no, they began Doesn't, earlier, but they're like he's he's going he off of sort of like, well, it's you know, it really has been good on 20 years. I don't know why that's my impression of Bollard. I'm sure he's a very intelligent man. No, he, uh, he is. Um, it's only been going on for 20 years. So I understand what he's getting at, and he's getting at what's in print. And, you know, what's in print versus word of mouth between right. a small, you know, a, a small group of people. Like, well, look, I mean, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Let, let, let's just go straight to the debunkers. The debunkers are always, if, and I think, this one shouldn't even be on the table anymore as a point of discussion. The old, oh, the alien this person describes being abducted by is looks just like that alien from the recent movie that just came out. Mm. First of all, there's if if, if you're going to say that, then it should be all alien. It's in other words, a movie should come out, and then all alien abductions after that point should. Appear to be that alien, like you right. know, you know all the aliens that people report meeting that look exactly like ET. Oh, right, zero. Right. There is absolutely no comparison. I've never heard of an alien that looks like ET. Actually, there is one that I can think of, and I don't know if the account <laughs> came out before ET did. There's yeah. a guy in, I I think it was Sweden in the eighties who reported seeing alien, like the sketch of the aliens, they look like E.T. But like E.T., imagine E.T. wearing a diving suit. That's what it looks like. I'll I'll try and track you down. I'll track you down the sketch and I'll send it to you. But um, Well, frankly, have you ever heard of anyone being abducted by an alien that looks like the alien from Ridley Scott's Alien? No, never. No, no, like so. 
the whole idea that these icons from film and television are having some any effect on witnesses and their stories is total horseshit. It's mm-hmm. never happened. And right. it is absolutely on the and the fact that it was ever a part of the Betty and Barney Hill thing is totally ridiculous. These yeah. are these are the oldest, creakiest, laziest and totally unproven that doesn't match up with anything in the lore. So the very idea that people are getting their abduction scenarios from movies, TVs, or books is a big zero. That's one thing we've learned. The other thing we've learned is it didn't start with Whitley Strieber. It didn't start with the uh, with Betty and Barney Hill. It didn't even start with Kenneth Arnold in 1947. We're getting stories of full-blown abductions by creatures that seem to resemble greys with big eyes and big heads, but they're short of stature as far back as the 1920s, okay? So so much of what we think we understand and much of of sort of the 30,000-point view that a lot of people take on this stuff, where it's like, well, first they're just, you know, UFOs. Then suddenly they're UFOs that are landing and doing things. Then suddenly there's aliens. Then suddenly people are getting abducted. Then suddenly, you know, it's like all these people, they've got to make their story, you know, just a little bit better than the last one. It's a lot of UFO one-upsmanship. Well, apparently that's not the case either. Yeah, it's just like a lot of. There's a lot. There's a lot here that that suggests like this phenomenon. Even because everything that I've pulled from for this episode was written before 1969. So even back then, we have these accounts, which are very suggestive of kind of the abductions that we become that, that we, we know and love and read about all the time that uh, you get in the seventies, eighties, all that stuff. It's happening. I I would also say that, and I would also say that, that the other thing that's really interesting about these is that the, um, for many of these people, the reaction of the abductees is Mm -hmm. what we associate with more modern day. It's more traumatic. These people are disoriented. They're afraid. Um, the one guy who was taken to Mars was afraid he was going to be killed when he was brought back. Yeah. Um, the the woman who was or, uh, who was complimented on her driving and then uh, asked to drive through the gully with the alien at her side. Yeah. Um, a- a- even she arrives back home not knowing what happened, where she's been, totally disoriented, frightened, and really wanting to know what happened to her during that incident of missing time. So so. The, the 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 sort of overall dynamic of the abduction holds true even in these earlier cases. It's not it's not something. It, it's not like oh, in the fifties the contactees were friendly, but then later they became malevolent. Uh, you know, after after Whitley Strieber wrote his book, suddenly everyone was being abducted by people who were doing cruel things to them. No, no. Again, these stories go back. Decades and decades and decades before that. So, right. so we're uh, if if you thought you had a, a handle on uh, the the evolution of the UFO encounter, uh, th- th- this pretty much breaks all of those. Yep, we uh, we did it. We uh, I think we've put out a pretty good we put out a pretty yeah. good summary of the early the early history of the abduction phenomenon. Um, 
Rich. Once again, Rob, we've we've muddied the waters. Uh, yeah. We've confused an already confusing topic, and we've left people baffled, angry, bored, frightened, and infuriated. Yes. So with the next episode, we'll lighten the mood a little bit with like, you know, the, I'll talk about the Her- the Herbert Shermer story, and you're going to talk about Albert Coe because, like, oh boy. I, his story is interesting because it's coming out. It, it, it was published in 69 and his story goes back to the twenties. So uh, you got that to look forward to folks. Um, so uh, for this episode, uh, Rich, thank you again for joining me. And, and like, we just like tear this topic apart every single time we get together. <laughs> My my pleasure, sir. Someone, you know, someone's got to do it, and it's going to be yeah. us. It, it, it is going to be us. Um, so, folks, uh, if you want to find us, we're on most podcasting apps. You, you want to follow us on social media? We're out there. Buy some merch. Uh, if you're looking for the link to the Patreon page, ourstrangeguys.com, it's that one stop shop for anything you need related to this podcast you can find it um uh also there's a pretty gnarly resource page on the website now that has a lot of digital resources that um uh are are really good a lot of old ufo journals and and such and and great links there so uh if you uh want to get lost down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what the earliest abduction account in print was uh you can do that just Go to the website, check out the resource page. That's what I did. I always forget to plug that I have a P.O. box. So uh, if you want to send me stuff, it's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. And if you haven't already, a new project I've been working on called Welcome UFO People. It's a webcomic that I've been uh, writing with my buddy Todd Purse, past guests. Uh, so basically once a month we release this five panel web comic and, uh, we've done a couple of them now. We've done one on the Paulo Saitano Silvera case, uh, which, um, has one of the most iconic images of Paulo Saitano underneath this light that's coming down from a ceiling and above him is this plank and on this plank is a tiny little alien that is like walking across it. It's iconic as hell. Uh, we've done that. We've done uh, a comic about a guy named Dan Duggleby who encountered like five alien robots while he was hunting in the hills of Bozeman, Montana. So if you enjoy web comics, you enjoy art, um, you can uh, check out. Welcome UFO people. Uh, we have a Twitter account at Welcome UFO Peeps, and our Instagram page is uh, Welcome UFO People. We post uh, high resolution images on our Patreons, but uh, you can find uh, images for those on those pages as well, and they'll be in the description, uh, the show notes for this uh, episode. If you want to do that, uh, I'm, we're a proud member of the Duvid Media family, which is uh, they've been great to us so far. Uh, special thanks to Floats for the use of their theme song. UF uh, for the use of their song UFO is our theme song. Uh, go check his stuff out. It's pretty good. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. Um, uh, Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast. Our logo was by Megan Lagerberg. 
and our t-shirt designs are by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in the fog cloud that's enveloped your car in South America. In gray, we trust. Media.